Our Father in heaven, you are our creator and you are our sustainer. And you are our redeemer. We ask that you would teach us today, guide us, instruct us in what you know is right and good. And we thank you for your supernatural work in helping us to grasp and respond to that and for the forgiveness you give us through your Son. We commit this morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen. When Carrie and I first started working in Papua New Guinea um, many years ago, one of the first things, or one of the things we would commonly be asked by people back here at home was, well, what religion do they practice in Papua New Guinea? And after living there for a while, my, the way I wanted to respond was to say, well, they don't have a religion. Um, actually, I think probably a sociologist would say something like they were animists or something like that. But what I was looking at is people in their day-to-day life are really pretty pragmatic. Uh, basically, as they face things in day-to-day life, they just do whatever they think will work to get them what they want and protect them from what they don't want. And it's really a mixed bag. And I think as we look across the world, and including in the U.S., there might be a tiny number of, of theologians or philosophers or Buddhist monks that sit down somewhere and try to write a consistent, systematic statement about what they believe. But I don't think anybody actually lives that way, even the people that write that stuff. And I remember a theology prof that I had in seminary said one, I'll try to tell it. He said, you know, when your child is in the hospital with a terminal injury and the doctors say he's probably not going to make it through the night, all the theology papers that you wrote and all the answers you gave in Sunday school go out the window. And what you're left with is what you actually believe. That has obviously stuck with me because I think that's true for all of us. When we look at the Scripture, we find that the Creator who made us and know how things work gave us these writings to help us understand how the world works And the thing is, I think we have a tendency to think when my child is in the hospital with a terminal illness, the fact that God called some guy named Abram 4,000 years ago and told him to go live somewhere is really not relevant to my problem today. But what I want to encourage us to think about today is our Creator says that has everything to do with what you face today. It has everything to do with it. And that as we look through here, what our Creator wants us to know so that we can properly relate to Him and deal with our things, good and bad, day to day, is He wants us to understand the big picture of what's going on. And that's what He's given us in here. And He does it primarily by telling us the history of what he's been doing ever since he created us up until now, what he's doing in history, and he gives it to us in the form of a story. It's not written like a newspaper article. It's written like you're reading a novel. 
And even the stuff that's not part in the narrative, like the prophets and the epistles, all they're doing is commenting on the story to help us understand and respond. And so what we're going to do today is that we're going to just kind of look at the big picture that God gives us in the, in the story as a whole, and it's full of hundreds and thousands of little individual stories, but they all go together to make one story because there's God is going to show us that there's really just one problem and there's one solution. And he wants us to understand that, but he's going to show us that. Now, I have some biblical precedent for taking 50 minutes to cover the whole Bible because there are a bunch of writers in the Bible who did it a lot faster than that. Just before Stephen was stoned, I don't know if he was about knew that he was about to die, but he knew he was at risk at death. He covered 2,000 years of biblical history in six and a half minutes. He was about to die, and he went over the history of Israel. Why in the world did he do that? Because understanding that made it clear what the situation was there. Uh, Moses in Deuteronomy, when the people, the second generation, was about to go into the promised land, he took a few pages of Deuteronomy to recount what God had been doing among them so they understood how they got where they are. Nehemiah does the same thing in Nehemiah chapter 9 when the a small number of a remnant had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. The temple had been re- rebuilt and they were rebuilding the wall. Ezra got up and read the law to them. They all stood there and listened to the whole law be read. And then Nehemiah, in about a five or six minute sermon, he covers all of history from creation up to the point where they were. Why? To prepare them for a Bible trivia quiz? No. Because that's how God wants us to understand who he is, how we got where we are, and what God is doing about the mess that the world is in. So, you see the way I have this marked. Uh, The way God has worked in history, at least the way he presents it to us in the scripture, is it's very clearly there are big blocks and big movements that God presents when he shows us what he's doing in the world. And we are part of that story. And the first big block there is from creation and the fall And this is a little short introductory uh, section. It's basically just an introduction, and it sets the scene for the whole rest of the Bible. It's a little short section. It's only about eight or nine, maybe ten pages, depending on your edition. And uh, and I'm going to, I'll try to only do it once, but I'll try not to get on my hobby horse, that it really grates on me that we call those little sections in the Bible chapters, because that sounds really big. We're talking about Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11. You know, 11 chapters in a physics book is a lot. But we're only talking about 8 or 10 pages. Uh, You can read that. It's doable. Okay? And he sets the scene. And what we're going to see in this section is God makes the point that God creates a good world and puts people in it and he provides them everything that they need. Everything that they need that is good, they have, and it includes his direction and guidance in how to live in that world. But what happens is people over and over and over 
They reject God and they don't like what he has to say about it and they want to be in charge. They want to decide what's right or wrong. We'll read in Genesis chapter 1. You know, the first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's a description going through there of how God creates the different things and separates things and fills things. The whole point, whatever else you get from that, is it's very orderly. God arranges things and puts things where they belong. And his conclusion at the end of the chapter in verse 31 is that God saw all that he'd made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, sixth day. No problem, right? Now, chapter 2, he goes on and he goes back over the creation of man. Okay, it's not because the writer got it wrong or God created man twice. It's just it's a common thing in the Bible. There's a summary statement in chapter 1 about creation. Now, chapter 2, he goes back to fill in some details about the creation of man. And part of it, again, God emphasizes he's given man everything he needs and giving them instructions about what is good and bad, right or wrong, and how to live in this world. But you know what happens in chapter 3. Adam and Eve reject that, and they decide to go on their own. And I want to skip down uh, to verse in chapter 3, verse 6, because God went to a lot of trouble to show, to write this down so that we're clear about what happens here. Eve didn't just break a rule. There's some dialogue and we're let in on Eve's thinking so we understand what the problem actually is. It says in verse 6 that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Okay, what happened? Let's be very clear about two things. Number one, Satan did not force her to do this. She sinned all her own of her free will. I'm not sure I could prove this biblically, but I, I'm not sure that I understand from Scripture that Satan has ever been able to make anybody sin. Let's make sure that we understand that. She chose to sin, and why did she do it? And this is the other thing we want to be clear about. Eve did not misunderstand God's instruction. When Satan deceived Eve, it's not a matter if he tricked her into misunderstanding what God had said, and so she ate the fruit thinking she was doing God's will. That's not what happened. The deceit was Eve decided that what God said wasn't true that he wasn't trustworthy. And she decided that her own assessment of whether or not that fruit was good was more reliable than God's opinion. We need to understand that that's the root of what's going on here. Adam and Eve have decided that they know better than God what's right and wrong. Well, you know what happens God ends up driving them out of the garden. He had told them that if they sinned in the day that they ate of that particular tree, that they would die. They didn't die that day, but he drove them out, and they did eventually die. He drove them out of the garden, and he made life difficult. 
He made life difficult for them. We'll come back to that. Well, as we read on in this section, this continues with their children and their descendants. They continue to rebel against God. It reaches a point where you know the story. God says, all right, I'm going to wipe the slate clean except for Noah and his family, and I'm going to start over. So wipes everybody out, starts over with Noah. What happens? Exactly the same thing. People once again decide for themselves what they're going to do. And they reject God's instruction about what's right or wrong. I'll just read a part here in chapter 11, beginning in 1. It says, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. They're exalting themselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. By the way, what did God told them to do? That. They're saying, let's not do what God said. That's rubbish. Let's exalt ourselves. Well, verse 5, the Lord came down to the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, look, they're one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they'll not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So as we come to the end of chapter, this little section, these first few pages of the Bible, chapter 1 through 11, we've set the scene, and there is a world that we recognize. It is a world filled with multiple people groups speaking a variety of languages, all of whom are in rebellion against God. And they're not even able to cooperate with each other in their rebellion against God because they can't even get along with each other or even understand each other. And so I want to make a couple of observations here about what God shows us in this section. One is we understand that God is the creator. He's the one that made everything and knows how it works. And it's legitimate for him to have authority. And he's made it very clear that he takes rebellion against him very, very seriously. It's deadly serious. He will kill you. And yet at the same time, there's a patience here. He provided a means for Noah and his family to escape that temporal judgment. And even his death sentence for rebellion against him is delayed. And he establishes a pattern that's going to occur through the whole rest of the Bible. When people have rejected him, what he will do is drive them away to some degree from his blessing and make their life difficult, as he did for Adam and Eve, for Cain, and then after the Tower of Babel, confusing people's languages and scatter them. He says, all right, you want to try to live without my provision and instruction and guidance? You go out and try it. And so what we do is we live in a broken, frustrated world. Paul refers to that in Romans chapter 8. It's a world subjected to futility. So <clears throat> this is the, the situation we're in. But what we find in God's story is God doesn't leave it that way. God is going to take the initiative to step in and say, I'm going to do something 
to fix this. And we see that in the next section, Genesis chapters 12 through 50, a very clear block in the scripture that I'm going to refer to as the patriarchs. From the time that God calls a man named Abram, he calls this man Abram and says, from your descendants, I am going to make a new nation that's different from all these other nations of people in rebellion against me. I'm going to make a new nation and you're going to be my people. And I'm going to use you then to go back and bless all those other nations. We read in chapter 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. What did the people at the tower want to do? They were going to make their own name great and reject God. God says, no, you do what I say, and I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to say it one more time. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Just out of curiosity, you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. But is anyone in here ethnically Jewish, a physical descendant of Abraham? I think even as Christians, we make this huge division about God's work with Israel, that somehow that was over there, and now he's doing something different from us. You see right here, you and I are as much a part of this world plan that starts in Genesis 12 as Abraham was, or King David. You and I in Granbury, Texas in 2020 are part of God's plan right here. We're an integral part of this stuff in the Old Testament. It's not irrelevant. Well, as we read through this section, this whole section of about patriarchs, the whole point of this is God is going to be at work in that family to build up that family and use them. But if you read the story the way it's written, read it the way it's written, How do the patriarchs themselves do in their personal lives? Head shaking. It was one nonstop train wreck. One calamity after another. One disaster after another. Extremely dysfunctional family. All kinds of lying, cheating, and stealing, incest, immorality, swindling. You name it, they did it. They were frequently very unfaithful to God. But that's the point of the story. God is faithful. God continues to be faithful in face of these people's rebellion. And what is God faithful in? God is faithful to continue intervening and reaching in actively, taking the initiative to reach into their lives And draw them back to himself and call them to trust him. And after repeated failures, repeated failures, repeated failures, and their unfaithfulness, God continues in his faithfulness to his promise. That's the point of the section. Uh, Keith and I have talked a lot about uh, children's Sunday school material because we both get so frustrated that they look especially at Old Testament narrative and they'll pick a story and say, 
Okay, now this happened. What moral can we derive from this? Some ethical moral uh, that we can teach the kids about how to behave. There is some of that in there, but the thrust of the story is God's faithfulness in the face of our unfaithfulness. Uh, just turn as an example. Turn to chapter 39. Uh, from 37 to 50 is all one section. It has to do with uh, Jacob and his 12 sons and the brothers planning to kill Joseph. Instead, they sell him as a slave. They end up in Egypt. You know all that. I'm going to skip down 39. You you can just skim it. But in verse 39, it says in verse 2 that the Lord was with Joseph. This was when he was a slave in Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Now, his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. The Lord blessed the Egyptian on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned. Uh, Skipping way down to 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So what do children's Bible books and commentaries say? You know, what we can learn from Joseph is if you're just honest and work with integrity and do a good job, you'll get promoted. You know, that might, not, that might be true, but that, do you see that's not the point of the story? All of this from 37 to 50, the writer makes it very clear that the point of the story is that these guys are all sinners. But God is taking the initiative. It is God at work in their lives is the only reason any of them ever come to their senses and repent and trust him is because God is working in their lives. And when they stumble over and over and over, God keeps saying, I made a promise. You're unfaithful to me, but I'll be faithful to you. And that's the point. Well, I want to flip back for just a second because there's something that happens in this section that's going to occur all through these different blocks of history. And that is very often God will tell them something during one block of history. He'll give them some information about what's coming later. So we'll know it was all part of the plan. Way back in chapter 15, uh, in chapter 15, God is kind of, repeating the promise that he's making to Abraham about making a nation of him and blessing the world. And this is where he actually makes the covenant. But he makes an interesting comment uh, in verse 13. He says, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I'll also judge the nation whom they'll serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. All right. So, God tells Abraham, I'm making a promise. I'm going to make a nation from your descendants. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless the whole world through you. But put your tray table in the upright position. Sit down, fasten your seat belt, because there's going to be a journey to get there. 
But it's not because my plan failed. It's part of the plan. It's part of the plan. So let's go to that part of the plan. From the time, from the time God told Abram, Abram that until Jacob and his sons and grandsons, the clan of about 70, actually moved to Egypt, it's about uh, 200 years. You can, times are given in. It's about 200 years later, they go to Egypt. And so um, that's where we're left at the end of this section. And then there's just kind of a blank. We don't have a lot of stories. We don't know much about what happened during about 400 years in Egypt other than the people group grew and they became slaves. And so we pick it up in the next section. I'm going to call Exodus. The next big block in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy just covers um, about 40 years. And in this section, we see that God rescues his people that he had made a promise to Abraham about. He rescues them from the situation that let's not lose sight of the fact God is the one who put him there. We all we all grasp that God is the one that put him there. But God says, now it's time. And he sends Moses to lead them. From slavery in Egypt, and he's going to take them to the land that he had promised their forefather Abraham. How do people respond? Well, they respond in the same way they do in every section of history. They don't like what God is doing, and they want something different. So, let's look at uh, what God is doing here in, Je- in Exodus chapter 3. Just read a couple of excerpts. You guys know this story. And God tells Moses... Okay, come now, I'll send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, um, see if I'm reading the verses that I wanted to pick out here. I'm sorry, let's skip down to 13 and 17. Verse 13, Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I'll say to them, God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they're going to say to me, who is it? What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you'll say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you'll say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I'm indeed concerned about you, what's been done to you to Egypt, and so now I'm going to fulfill what I promised to do. So again, he kind of repeats history up to that point. So what is he going to do with them in verse chapter 19, Exodus 19? In Exodus 19, I'll read verses 3 through 6. Moses went up to God on Mount Sinai, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and now I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Again, repeating what happened historically. Now then, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That may sound familiar on one of our scripture readings this morning. So God says, all right, you're going to be my people. I'm going to fulfill my promise. But you're going to be a kingdom of priests and you're going to be reaching out to the whole rest of the nation. But once again, the people didn't want it. They would rather stay slaves in Egypt than have what God was giving them. If you'll turn to Numbers 14. You could pick any page from from Exodus chapter 3 all the way to the end of the Deuteronomy. And nearly every page is going to have people griping and complaining and telling God they don't want what he's given them. We'll just pick this one. Chapter 14, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. This is when the spies had gone in to spy out the promised land. They haven't gone in yet. And they came back and said, yeah, it's a pretty nice place, but <laughs> there's no way we can there's no way we can go in there. The people that are already there will kill us. Verse 14, uh, chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said, Oh, that we died in Egypt. Oh, that we had died in this wilderness. Why is God bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. In other words, God, what you're selling, we don't want. And as we go on through here, we see continually God is disciplining individuals in the nation, but in spite of their unfaithfulness, God is faithful. And what we see through the whole point of Exodus is God continues unrelentingly and powerfully moving forward his plan in spite of the constant unfaithfulness, feet dragging and complaining from the people. This past week, uh, we had some of our kids down from Kansas and uh, there were some days that we had all seven of our grandchildren in our house at one time. And our seven grandchildren, it's a pretty tight, it's a pretty tight grouping. They're from age two to seven. And uh, it was a lot of fun, but as you can imagine, it was a lot of noise. And man, was there a lot of complaining and whining going on. You know, about the food, it's too hot, it's too cold, I want to go in, I want to go out. And Carrie and I both were thinking, you know, that is exactly the way we treat God. The things that we complain about when we're adults, <laughs> we think they're more important than what a three-year-old is complaining about, but we act exactly the same way. When we don't like what dad gives us what we want right now. It's painful to read. But God is faithful. Well, God does get them out of Egypt. And we come to the next big section. And I lump together the conquests and the judges. God brings the nation. They cross the river. They go into this land that God has promised to give them. And he has promised to drive out the people that are already there and the That sounds mean, but remember, we're all sinners, and they deserve the judgment they were getting from God. And once again, even when God does all that for them, there's constant rebellion. We're just going to read the section in Judges chapter 2 that describes this whole time period. 
There's lots of stories about different judges, but it's only it's just the same story over and over. In Judges chapter 2, the writer is going to give us a summary of this whole 400-year time period. And all the individual stories are just a repeat. It's just the same story over and over. Let's see. Let's start in verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. But then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his, his inheritance in Tenath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. I wonder why they didn't know it. Verse 11, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bound themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. God is a severe judge. He is a severe judge. But that's not all he is. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. The severe judge is also a gracious redeemer. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They, didn't, they did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods. And he says this goes on over and over and over. And through the rest of Judges, that's what you read. Once again, what is the big lesson? We can get little lessons out of individual stories about Gideon or Samson. But what's the main point? The world is a mess because they, people refuse to listen to God and cooperate with Him being God. And God is a severe judge, and yet He's being gracious. And He's continually taking the initiative to work out a plan by which he is going to redeem and bless people. Well, this continues, this whole situation with judges continues for about 400 years. And the next turning point, we're going to transition to a period where there are kings. And turn to 1 Samuel 8. And I think this is the whole period of 
kings in Israel, I think, is one of the most misunderstood things, at least in the church tradition I'm from, why there even were kings. Basically, nominally, from the time God sent Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and in the Promised Land, for now we're coming on 500 years, nominally God has been their leader. But they have continually rebelled and they don't like God being their leader and God would send temporary judges. And so finally, it it all comes to the surface. And I'm going to start reading in uh, 1 through 9, chapter 8. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now, the name of his first Samuel was the last judge. Sometimes he's called the last judge and the first prophet. He was a judge. He appointed his son's judge over Israel. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, took brides, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons don't walk in your ways now. Appoint for a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Appoint a king for us who will judge us like all the nations. But the thing was deeply displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Understand where we are in history. God had told Abram, I will be your God. You will be a nation that belongs to me. He had, Israel, he had Moses lead the people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land and give them the whole law that God said, these are house rules. You're my family. I am your leader. And what are they saying here? God, take off. We don't want you for our leader. We want a king like the nations, which is exactly what God had told Abraham and Moses, is that you're not going to be like them. The whole point I'm calling you to be my people is so that you will be different from those nations that I scattered at the Tower of the Babel. And they said, God, we don't want it. We want to be like them. Because we are like them. God does... He puts one of the most severe judgments on them that God ever puts on people. He lets them have what they want. So he tells them, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But you know what? I'm going to let them have what they want. But then down later in the chapter, he tells them what it's going to be like. What is it like to have a human king? And so he describes it. It's going to be oppressive. They're going to abuse you. They're going to tax the daylights out of you. They're going to take your children. Now, in a way, it doesn't sound too severe because that's the world we live in. We're used to that. But as you read down there, the whole point is God says, I'm not like that. If you'll let me be your king, 
your life is going to be a whole lot different because I am not like that. Well, sure enough, he lets them have kings. And for the whole rest of the period from here all the way through first Saul and then David and then Solomon and then Rehoboam and the kingdom splits between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, there's two kingdoms that goes down the road. It is a continual spiral out of control downhill until the destruction of the country. Them wanting a human king who would go ahead of them and fight their battles for them. God gives them 500 years to learn, about 400 years to learn that it's going to fail. And the only bright moments that we see in here that we try to hang our hat on and we miss the point, there are times in a few kings like David, occasionally in Solomon, maybe Joash or Hezekiah, there are a few bright moments where a few kings actually trust God and repent and follow his instructions. But it's only intermittent in all of these guys, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, all of them fail in sin. In those few brief moments of success, why do they occur? It's because of God's initiative in their life that God is producing that in them as he calls them to repentance and draws them to faith. I want to take just a moment here to address something that comes up in the Scripture, and it already has a bunch, but uh, you may have noticed we've skipped some verses up to this point. Um, As we read through each of these sections, on the one hand, as we read the history of Israel, in one way it reads like God tried this plan and it didn't work. So he scratched his head and he came up with plan B. And he tried that for a while, and it didn't work. So, oh, we'll scratch that. We'll try plan C. And by the end of um, the Gospels, we're on about plan Z. But actually, that's not the case. Within the Scripture itself, we show that even this, even where the people rebelled against God and asked for a king, and God says, that was bad for them to do that. They're rejecting me, but I'm going to let them have a king anyway. It was always part of the plan. Let me show you just a couple of verses. You don't have to turn there. I've got little tabs, so I can get there real fast. But at the end of, um, at the end of Genesis, when Jacob and all the boys are in Egypt, and just before Jacob dies, he gives a blessing on all of the... Uh, all of his sons. And there's this weird thing. Um, when he gets to Judah, what he says about Judah, he said, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the back of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. That is your brothers. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. I'm sure that even Judah and his brothers at the time were thinking, what? 
ruler's staff, the scepter. There's not even any talk about kings. It's going to be 500 years before Israel has a king. And when they get a king, it's because they rejected God and wanted a human king. And yet, it was part of the plan. What was our scripture reading in Revelation 5? Who's worthy to open the scroll? The Lion of Judah. Way back in Genesis 49, God says, You are a rebellious lot, but I've got a plan that's going to bring about the redemption of the world, and I'm going to bring my plan to pass. Look again, or you might turn, want to turn to this one, Deuteronomy 17. This is an amazing thing. Deuteronomy 17. This is about, uh, this is about 500 years since called, called Abram. And it's about 500 years before the people ask for a king. So we're right in about the middle. Moses is leading the people, and they're just about to go across the river, and he's giving them instructions. God is giving the people instructions. And then there's this amazing thing, verses 14 to 17. It's what God tells the people. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Remember, we just turned back to the left here. This is 500 years before it happened. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One king from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You shall not put a foreigner over yourselves who's not your countryman. Moreover, now listen, he's going to give three things that the king should not do. Moreover, you shall not multiply horses for himself. The king shall not multiply horses for himself. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall, he greatly incre- nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Not multiply horses and go back to Egypt to get horses. Not have lots of wives, especially foreign wives. And thirdly, not multiply wealth to him. When you go to 1 Kings 10 and 11, there's a summary of the end of Solomon's life. After all the things that God has done for Solomon, it describes the end of his life. And what is it? It's this list of three things. It lists all the wealth and gold he accumulated. It lists the fact that he had thousands of horses and he traded and went to Egypt or sent people to Egypt. He was horse trading with the Egyptians and he multiplied the wives his wives, many of whom are foreign wives, and he began actually building idol temples that were present in Israel until the Israel was uh, destroyed in the exile for another 500 years. As you read through the section of Kings, realize that there are instances where we see God intervening in individuals' lives and calling them to repentance, but the overarching point of this section of the Scripture is very clear. Man cannot save you from what you're afraid of. 
a human king, a government, a political party is not going to rescue you from the problems in your life. It might give you temporary relief from some little pain, but a king who is merely a man and a human government cannot protect you. Only God can. Well, that goes through the kings, uh, but it gets even worse. What we find is that God does exactly what he said he was going to do. If you don't obey me as my people, I'm going to allow your enemies to overrun you, defeat you in battle, and carry you away as captives. And that's what happens, and that comes to the section we refer to as the exile. If you'll turn to Second Chronicles... I'm going to start in Second uh, Chronicles 36:15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again, and sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. And so God did exactly what he told them he was going to do. Now, most of you don't know it, and my wife didn't know it when she married me. But I'm, I'm an angry guy and, and have a really bad temper. The only thing I'm good at is hiding it, except from my family when I'm at home. But God is not hot-tempered. It is at this point now, it's been... Uh, 1,500 years since he called Abraham. And all of the patriarchs, and all during the time of the Exodus, and all during the time of the judges, and all the time during the kings, it has been one continuous, unrelenting failure on the part of the people to trust him and obey him. And he said, that's it. I've had it. You're out of here. And the Babylonians coming down is not just something that happened. God sent them to destroy Jerusalem and tear down the temple in judgment for their sin. And yet, God is still a gracious Redeemer. Down to verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Pert, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation through his kingdom and also put it in writing, said, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever, therefore, is among you of all his people, that is the Jews, may the Lord God be with him, let him go. So we see again, God, the strict judge, is also the faithful Redeemer, who on his own initiative and in spite of our unfaithfulness is continuing his plan of redemption. So he sends them back, and we won't read it, but at the end of Nehemiah, we can read in Ezra and Nehemiah, where there's only a small remnant. And by the way, you'll notice I put partial remnant. From the biblical point of view, the exile is still in effect. There were only a few people that went back and rebuilt the temple. 
in the wall. And uh, the, the, even Nehemiah presents the fact that the exile actually is still in effect. But anyway, they return, and if we had more time, we would read the passages in Nehemiah. But the people all recommit themselves to God, and at the end of Jeremiah, what do they do? Exactly the same thing every other, all their forefathers did. And Nehemiah writes it in a way where there are specific things they commit themselves to do. And in the last chapter, it's that exact same list. They're not doing it. So the Old Testament ends how? In every period of history, people have continued in their rebellion against God. And everything that God did, uh, that made it appear that through man they could have some kind of redemption, failed over and over and over. But that was God's plan because he was leading up to something. And that's the next step. That's the next step. We haven't been reading them, but as I showed, often in every block of history... God will make reference to things that he's going to do later so that those who trust him can realize, okay, it's hard now, but I understand God has a, he's got something good coming up. We asked our Sunday school class this morning because it was about the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness if they ever grumbled when they were on a long road trip. You know, it's getting hot, it's getting cold, I'm tired, I don't like the food. And the parents are saying, hey, we're going to be at grandma's house, we've only got eight hours to go. They don't want to wait eight hours. But all through the Old Testament, God keeps giving these hints that he's going to send somebody. It's not entirely clear in the Old Testament. But by the time the New Testament rolls along, they understand that God is going to send somebody who's going to do something. And they tend to lump all that together under the label in Hebrew. It's Mashiach. We say Messiah. That just means anointed one. I think you know Messiah is just Hebrew and Christ is Greek. It just means an anointed one, one that's marked out for a special purpose. And they labeled that. They knew God was going to send an anointed one and he's going to fix everything. And that's what we have happen in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The guy comes. And as we read in the Gospels, and the Gospels are not biographies. They're not biographies. What they are is each writer It is a call to respond to the claims of Christ. Each gospel demonstrates who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. Each one writer arranges it his own way. But the question they deal with is, who is this guy? There's two parts to this question. Who is this guy when you read the gospels? We know we're expecting somebody, a prophet like Moses, a servant, a suffering servant, um, Um, the root of Jesse, the seed of David, a king from the house of David. We're not sure what he's going to be, but this Jesus, is he that guy? That's the first question. Is he the guy God said he would send to fix everything? But a second, less obvious thing is who is he really? Because most of the Jews were really expecting just a man like King David. They were not prepared for the Son of God. But secondly, and this is also the big question, is what did he actually come to do? What does fixing everything mean? Well, most of us understand what the Jews thought it meant. It meant that their political party would be in charge. 
that we'd drive the Romans out and we'd have a king that would run things like we want to run them. But that wasn't actually their main problem, was it? What did the lion, what did the lion of Judah have to do first before he came crashing through the world with a sword? He had to come as the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, who would die on the cross to fix the real problem. And the real problem is not my terminal illness. The real problem is not that my child is in jail. The real problem is not the wrong party is in power, whoever you think the wrong party is. The problem is that you and I are guilty sinners in rebellion against God. And no political party, no medicine can fix that. And all through the Old Testament, would you get that point from all of those stories? That God is showing us in a thousand people's lives, in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different settings, all of which are like your real life, that the only answer is trusting God to deal with it according to His wisdom and His timetable. And a big part of actually trusting Him is sitting there and waiting and enduring. And that's a glory to God when His people trust Him enough to do that. Just like His Son Jesus did, who for the glory set before Him, did what? He endured the cross. God's not asking any of us to do that. Are we willing to endure what He asks us to endure? To participate in His plan and trust that that actually is God? Are we going to let God decide what's good for us? Are we going to be like the Israelites? Hey God, I'll tell you what's good for me, and if you give it to me, I'll believe you and follow you. If you don't, you can take a walk. Well, you know how the Gospels end. Just like, just like all the other blocks of history, the vast majority of the people rejected him and died and, uh, they killed him. And once again, we see the conundrum just like the kings of Israel. Jesus specifically said, you know, Judas is guilty. That was sin. He chose, he chose to betray me and he'll have to pay for that. But you know what? At the same time, it was part of God's plan all along. That's one of those things that I don't think we can get our head around. God says, would you trust me? Will you trust me? I actually do know what I'm doing. Just trust me. So now that's where we are. And you and I are not part of a new story, and all the Old Testament is irrelevant now. I actually had a Bible translator tell me one time, basically that the Old Testament was irrelevant, because you don't put new wine in old wineskins. And uh, old things have passed away, new things have come, and the new covenant supersedes the old covenant. And he called, he was putting the old covenant and old wineskins as the Old Testament. That's not true. All the New Testament writers, even the ones writing to Gentile Christians, their scriptures, they're basing their whole message on this whole story. And because knowing this story lets us know this is what God is doing. 
So what do we do until he returns? Well, you know the Great Commission, Matthew 28. That now, having forgiveness by the work of the Lamb of God on the cross, we have forgiveness restored to him, and now we have something that they didn't have in the Old Testament, at least not the same way, the Holy Spirit. God is supernaturally at work so that we as the body of Christ actually can be a nation of priests to reach out effectively to the world. Not because we have figured out how to do it better than the Israelites did in the Old Testament, but because God took the initiative and the power to make it possible. And finally, he tells us what he's going to do. And he tells us that the Lamb of God that died on the cross for us, he is going to come back as a king, as a ruling king. He is going to come back acting like what most of the Jews thought he was going to act like 2,000 years ago. Jesus says, I am going to come back. And even as John writes to us, and we like to read in the Revelation, excuse me, in uh, Matthew 24, Jesus is telling his disciples, this is Jesus, and he's talking to us about when he comes back, what it's going to be like and what he's going to do. And in that passage, what does he do? He quotes from Daniel 7. He said, that prophecy Daniel gave the Jews... When there was all these visions of these different beasts that were kingly rulers, and what finally comes and supersedes all of those? One, like the Son of Man, is going to come down from heaven, and he will rule because he's not going to be a creature like an earthly kingdom and an earthly king. It's going to be something different. And so when Jesus is talking to us as his disciples in this age, he's explaining who he is and what he's going to do based on all this other stuff in the Old Testament. Can I encourage you, and this is what I really want to do this morning, to not think of whatever, especially if it's a trial you're facing, with yourself, with your family, whether it's physical, financial, emotional, to somehow think, that all of this stuff about Joseph and his brothers in Egypt is irrelevant. This is where God shows you what he's like and how he works in people's lives. It has everything to do with us knowing who it is we're trusting and how he works. Maybe even a more difficult thing. When things are going really well, how easy is it for us to pat ourselves on the back? i got a handle on this. That's a gift from God. Every breath you take, every paycheck you get, no matter how hard you work, it's only because God gave you the strength and ability to do that. And we need to thank God for that. Don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. God has a plan. And the only way for us to really understand our current situation and the particulars in our life and to make sense out of what a mess the world is in is to step back and view it, the big, big picture, from God's perspective. I would wrap up then, but I'll just 
I'll make a pitch for ACBC in the, in the counseling training. If you stop and think about it, um, I'm not working on certification, but I've gone through the training several times, and I'll do it several more times. When you think about what that training is, it's really that. It's simply helping people walk through the Scriptures and let God tell us, look at the world from my perspective. Don't evaluate your situation the way Eve did and the way the, the Israelites did wandering in the wilderness or the way the people did during the judges. Don't evaluate your life the way they did and choose a course of action the way they did. Let me tell you how life works. And make your choice based on that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do marvel at your forbearance. Lord, I confess my desire is that you be not anywhere near as judgmental as you are. Be nowhere near as righteous as you are. I want you only to be righteous enough to punish people I don't like. But to just look the other way at my sin. And I don't really want you to be anywhere near as gracious as you are. I want you only to be gracious to me for the things that I think aren't really that bad. But I don't want you to be gracious to my enemies. Lord, I'm just like the Israelites. Lord, I confess that and I need you. I need the redemption through your Lamb. I need the power of your Spirit to cut through all the lies I believed and to show me the truth. Empower me to believe it and to trust you. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast loving kindness that never ends. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.